Uh, we're in Acts 13 tonight, so let's turn to there. Now, tonight I'm going to do quite a bit of reading uh, to you. Uh, I know it's not my typical way of teaching, but I'm so moved by this book, and I, I don't know any other way to present it to you other than reading it. Um, I, I, I haven't read it enough to be able to own it, um, but I'm moved by it. I'm actually reading three books right now, and uh, this one is prophetic. Um, the Great Evangelical Disaster was written by uh, Francis Schaeffer back in the early 80s. He also wrote The Christian Manifesto in the early 80s, and there were 35 things he listed at the end of his book in the early 80s that religiously were under attack that he was fearful would, would be lost in America. And as I'm reading this book, uh, 26 of the 35 have already gone. I mean, we've lost them. It, it was, it's such a prophetic book, and it hasn't been revisited. And then after what occurred in, in Paris um, and just kind of what we're dealing with in the world and as a nation— um, and what our response is, I, I listened to the president um, speaking in, uh, in Turkey and um, going through the approach to this terrorism, um, talking about ISIL, and each of them were practical approaches militarily, um, bombings, um, troops on the ground, intel, and, and in no case was it ever addressed that this is an ideological issue and the only way to stop an ideological issue is to approach it from an ideological basis. And we don't have one in the United States, and, and it's, it's prophetic where we are as a nation, and one of the reasons why the church is struggling so much. And I found it fascinating as I'm reading this book that we come to Acts 13, and I was burdened to get back and be with you. Uh, I was grateful that Zach was willing to step in, uh, you know, and it, there was a strong likelihood. I mean, literally, I got here probably 11 minutes ago, and or 12 minutes ago. So uh, I'm, I'm excited to share with you. I want to go through the passage, um, and then I'm going to read to you uh, what I consider to be a great illustration and an application of the text itself that is modern day and something that I think all of us have questions about, and we, we long to have answers. Um, I was back in Virginia with one of the American Renewal Projects in the Issachar Training, um, and Fascinatingly enough, every state that we've gone into, we've had a huge response. Virginia is a very difficult area. Uh, this is the hotbed of, of politics, and there's, there's no recession. There's, there's no um, financial burden anywhere within, I'd say, a 100-mile radius of Washington, D.C., because there's been such a massive redistribution of wealth that all the money has been centralized into Washington, D.C., and you can see as we travel into Iowa and we travel to uh, Oklahoma or we go into Louisiana, the hotels are struggling. They're trying to, you know, get folks to, to come to their hotels. You can tell that they've, they've not had upkeep real well. And these are high-end hotels. You go into Washington and everything's resplendent. There's a massive amount of money there. It's, it's all been funneled in. And what's, what's shocking to me is we invited all the pastors in the Virginia area to come and participate. And there's such a spiritual oppression in that, in that state, especially around Washington. There's very few Bible-believing uh, teaching churches in the Washington area. Um, and it's sad. And there's a fear to engage. And, and we're, we're looking at the, the soul of America and how do we respond to really what is the decline of or, or would be a postmodern world or the decline of the Christian the Christian world. And Acts 13 is fascinating because there was no Christian world. And, and the first thing, Paul comes back on the scene. I've been telling you about Paul. He, he's been gone for, well, it, we, we, could, we can conservatively say he's been gone for 10 years. Uh, from the time on the road to Damascus where he was, he was uh, struck blind and knocked off his horse. Uh, he's gone through a series of training, and uh, Peter has been the one that we've seen the most of. We saw him with Rhoda last week, or week before with a prayer, and uh, knocking at the door, and they were praying a prayer of faith and still didn't believe he was at the door. And, um, and it was fascinating to me to see all this happen. Well, now Peter's off the scene, and Paul's going to come back. Paul's going to be the apostle to the Gentiles, though he has a burden for the Jewish people, and he'll say in his writings that I would, I would rather die than to have them... Um, suffer damnation. He, he, he longs to have his people come to Christ. He's burdened with them, but he has been called to minister to the Gentile world. 
He's trained under Gamaliel, who uh, went on to teach Hillel. These are the greatest rabbis in the history of Israel. He trained under them. Uh, Paul speaks multiple languages. He's got a lawyer's mind. He's a debater. He's, he's able to go to Mars Hill uh, in Athens and debate from Mars Hill and, and have a stunning victory. Um, he is a very sharp intellect. And he comes in uh, to the picture, and let's see what happens and where he goes and wh- what, where he goes to preach the gospel. And it'll tie in with where we are today. Let me pray, and then we'll begin with the reading of the word. Lord, thank you for this evening, and I thank you, Lord, for the folks that in the course of their busy week have come to just feed from your living word. Every bit of it is true. It's inerrant, every jot, every tittle. And there is a, there's a battle in America for the inerrancy of your word and that we would dare to call ourselves evangelicals and reject the inerrancy of Scripture is beyond me. Lord, I, I pray that you would instill in all of us this absolute you've given us, that you hold your word above your name. And it's a great gift that you've given mankind that transforms the world. And I pray that our hearts would be steadfast to receive it and apply it for your glory. So Lord, glorify us that we might glorify you and help keep the folks awake tonight. Uh, give them attentive minds as it's just been a full week. We're all tired, but Lord, there's so much that we need to comprehend and be prepared for in the coming days. So we thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I can crank the air conditioner and keep you wide awake if you'd like. That's what they did to me on the airplane. So would you like that? No? Yes? Yeah, I'm a little hot. Let's, let's just get a little air, and then as we start to see people bundle up and sniffle, we'll, we'll cut it a bit. Acts 13, now, in the church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers. So you've got prophets. A prophet uh, speaks the word of God with boldness um, into the, the culture itself. Uh, basically, if, if you do this, if you, if you sow to this, you'll reap this. If you sow to this, you'll reap this. Uh, whatever man sows, that he will reap. And, and that's a prophet declaring the, the byproduct of the word being applied or the word being disregarded. And so a prophet speaks the word with boldness into a culture that affects the culture. Either you respond to it or you don't. A teacher is one who sits down and says, now let me walk you through the aspects of this and rightly dividing the word of truth. I want to exegete the text. I want to put it into context. I want to share with you the nuances of the language as we're interpreting and going through it. And the teacher gives you greater insight. A prophet is, uh, is like a preacher in some regards. It's, it's somebody who says, we're going to take that hill. And you get to the hill and the teacher says, let me tell you why we took that hill. Um, and, and so these are giftings that are in the body of Christ. Uh, a prophet's life is typically lonely. When Francis Schaeffer wrote these books, he was kind of disregarded by the Christian community. He was in Labrie and... Um, in Switzerland, and uh, some of the greatest intellects of all time studied under him. He was a brilliant man, much like the Apostle Paul. And uh, his grasp of church history, his grasp of intellectual concepts and ideas, well-read, well-understood. But when the general population of Christendom read his works, they kind of felt like, you know, that's a little, that's a little heavy for us right now. Because you figure when he came out in the mid-80s, or actually, excuse me, the early 80s, who was president of the United States in the early 80s? Reagan, 1980, and things were looking great, and we had an affluence, and and there was just, it was, you know, money was just, you just printing it, it was just coming out, and you start a business, and it flourishes, and we, everybody bought stuff, and we had things, and, and there really wasn't time to consider a a deviation, as he called it, a watershed. He spoke about the, the, the Rhone River, and he, and he talked about how you know, in this one valley in Switzerland, it was a watershed that the snow would fall, and, and when it would melt, it would fall to either side. The snow that fell to the right side would go out into the, the freezing Baltic, and the, the snow that fell on the left side would be out into the warm Mediterranean. And depending on where you were in that line is where you fell. And he said, in America, is at a precip, they're at a watershed, that, that the nation is walking away from the inerrancy of Scripture, and now we're teaching topical messages and we're, we're, our, we're, our schools of higher learning are starting to come to a place of liberal theologians where we are rejecting the authority of God's word and the inerrancy of God's word. And it was in vogue to try to do it. And we came out with a whole alphabet soup of brand new uh, Bible interpretations from the Alexandrian text. The, you know, and, and everybody wants to get the ESV and it's the hippest, newest thing. And portions of scripture are missing that were in the King James Version. And 
And everyone is saying, well, that's not necessarily there or it's not accurate. And it, and it was in vogue of, of higher criticism to reject the word of God. And, and, and if you don't have a foundation, if there isn't an absolute, where are you going as a culture and where are you going as a nation? And he was just pointing out that where you are in that watershed is where you're going to end up. And, and he saw that in the early 80s that the churches themselves and the seminaries were walking away from biblical inerrancy. And, and as a result, we have a culture that's been affected by it. And the coolest thing now in the, in the churches is to be relevant, as though somehow that's going to change the culture to be affected by the culture, instead of transforming the culture itself and standing upon these truths. One of the things he was burdened by, and today it doesn't even resonate in the community in America, he was burdened by this idea of abortion that had been operating at that point for, for, for uh, eight years. And he was, it was an atrocity to him. He couldn't fathom that a judicial fiat, the, the, the courts would legislate the most immoral law in the history of America and, and, and the obliteration of the unborn. And it didn't even affect the pulpits in America. It was almost as though we just really didn't, and nobody protested. Nobody did anything really. And they'd just gone on, uh, with, you know, unrestricted. And, and here we are. And, and the mantra back in 1973 was, a world of wanted children would make a world of difference. And, and there was 100,000 abuse cases a year in America, and everyone bought into it. Well, that's kind of hip. That's cool. Well, but what about the scripture that says you've been fearfully and wonderfully made before you were born? I knew you, that Jesus leapt in the womb of Mary when he came into contact with Elizabeth, and John was in the womb, and they were named, and those were babies, and they weren't blobs of tissue. And, and, and how did we get to this place? And now it's almost as though it's not even, you don't even talk about it. And, and to find funding for a, a community crisis pregnancy center. And, and even the pregnancy centers are like, you know, we're really not making any money. Why don't we just change to a women's clinic? And everybody's just kind of given up this idea. Nobody has a foundation. Nobody has any chutzpah. Nobody has any willingness to stand firm on these truths. Well, it's fascinating because Paul comes into a culture where <clears throat> infanticide is there. Paul comes into a culture where there's, they're, they're going to shortly be feeding Christians to the lions because they're unwilling to, to submit and worship Caesar. Christians, early Christians were rebels. They were revolutionaries. The whole church started from that concept. And Paul steps into Antioch and, and you see these folks and you've got prophets and teachers and they're starting to assemble. And these are people that have been moved by the living word, by Jesus Christ himself. And they want to make a difference. They want to see this word take root and, 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 and flourish in their communities. So you have Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, who had been uh, brought up with Herod, the Tetrarch. So Menaean knew what bad government was like. He lived under it. <clears throat> he saw the most evil aspects of it. And then you have Saul. And as they ministered to the Lord and fasted, by the way, fasting is just something that we, we don't apply much anymore, but we're going to be doing a lot more of that as it's going to get heavier. Um, oh, and by the way, did you guys read today the, the editor of the Washington Times called uh, on our trip back? He said there's 21 sleeper cells that have gone silent and uh, the president's not doing anything to, to find them. And these are folks that they're, they're, they're thinking of maybe hitting the caucuses in Iowa, <clears throat> the football games that are going to be happening. Uh, we're going to see some ugly stuff in America. It's, it's not just limited to Europe. It's just a matter of time. I remember listening to Newt Gingrich talk about this. And I, I thought, you're a wacko. I mean, I didn't think that, but I thought, that's, I can't fathom that. I just, I can't fathom that. Is anyone in here, I mean, does that seem shocking to anyone that that could possibly happen here? No. I mean, we're, we're like, I hope it doesn't happen here. Right? So, here you have, uh, they were ministering to the Lord. They were fasting. There was a, a burden for their, for their community. They saw the decadence. They saw the misery. What did it bring them to? Prayer and fasting. Again, that's the hardest thing to try to get people to do in a church. But it won't be soon. It won't be soon. And the Holy Spirit said, now I don't know if it was an audible voice. I don't know how he spoke, but I know how God speaks to me. An impression. It may have been an audible voice, but he said, now separate to me Barnabas and Saul, for the work to which I've called them. Then having fasted and prayed, they laid hands on them and they sent them away. So they fasted and they prayed for a specific calling. They sent these guys out. And why did they send them out? To preach the gospel. 
to touch the world with the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, the power of the gospel. So they go to a place that we're familiar with because we have missionaries there. They call it the missionary graveyard. It's Cyprus. It's an island in the middle of the Mediterranean. It's not Cyprus here near LA. It's Cyprus in the Mediterranean. Uh, we have Tim and Darlene Maddox and Abby and Emma. Um, missionaries have gone there and just imploded and they've held out. And not only that, they have planted a church that's flourishing on the island of Cyprus in the city of Paphos, which we're going to see in this text. It's uh, one of the very first cities to be reached and they went back to re-reach it. And um, so where are we? And when they arrived in Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. They also had John as their assistant. Now, John Mark is Barnabas's nephew, I believe. And uh, we're going to see John Mark later. Uh, Paul and Barnabas are going to have a feud over this guy. They're going to fight over John Mark. John Mark is an assistant. He's helpful at this point, but there's one point where he bails on him, and Paul's like, look, this is war. Anyone who abandons his post, I don't want anything to do with him. Paul was always about the mission. Barnabas was always about the man. Barnabas is saying, hey, give him another chance. I gave you a chance. Nobody wanted to give you the time of day, and I came and found you. I'm the one who loved on you. And they argue. He says, no, you can't. This is serious warfare, and and we're going into cities, and we can't have a guy like that fold on us. And they're going to argue over John Mark. He's going to come back into the scene. But right here, he's depicted... As, um, as an assistant. And the, the, the Greek interpretation for the word assistant, is, it just means one who waits tables. He does everything. He's there just to serve him. And, and, and the true test of a servant is how you act when you're being treated like one. And at this point, they have no problem calling him an assistant or a servant. Having fasted and prayed, they laid hands on them, sent them away, and the Holy Spirit sent them uh, out. Uh, excuse me. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. And when they arrived in Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And then verse 6 says, now when they had gone through the island to Paphos. Now, I could draw it for you. It's, it's a funky looking map. Half of the island today is owned by the Turks. The other half is by the Cypriot, the Greek Cypriots. Um, the, the southern portion is it southern? Yeah, the southern portion, uh, Greek Cypriots are Orthodox. And the northern portion of the island is, is Muslim. Uh, the Muslims came in and attacked the Cypriots, took all their homes. The UN came and created a buffer. It's a fascinating location to drive through that buffer zone. Uh, there's been war going. The Cypriots are waiting for the North to surrender so they can go back and get their homes that the Turks took. And, and uh, there's, they're angry. And there's, there, a lot of people were killed. Um, Cyprus is going to be a fascinating place uh, in the coming years because most people... Uh, if, if something goes down in Israel, everyone has a bug out home in, in Cyprus. It'd be like all of us were, you know, Texas or Montana bug out place if it all gets ugly. I, I don't, but I was thinking, I don't know if there's any left. I think most of those folks have already gone. Um, uh, so, so Solomon's is, uh, you, you've got Nicosia, which is now the capital. Solomon's is a port city. And, um, and so they just, they travel in this direction. Now, Paul stops in the synagogue of the Jews. Now, the synagogue of the Jews, fascinatingly enough, was the city council or the town center for the Jewish community. This is where all the political questions were resolved. This is where the people got together to have their cases heard. And, and this is exactly where Paul goes. And he knows it, too. He builds on something that he understands completely and he goes right into the synagogue because he knows the people to speak to and he finds that as a common location and begins to preach. Um, So they go to Paphos and they found a a certain sorcerer. Sorcerer means he's dabbling in the black magics. He's dabbling in the, it might be an animist. Um, You know, we can think of a, a thousand ways to approach this. One would just be, any, any type of worship other than God would be considered a sorcerer, invoking uh, lesser gods uh, for your success. And, and he was a channeler of these less, lesser gods. And uh, what's that? A witch, yeah. Witch, witch. Yeah. But he, 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 he would be any one of those things. But he's not just a sorcerer. Uh, he is also a, an advisor and a counselor. Watch what happens here. They found a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew whose name was Bar-Jesus. Bar-Jesus. By the way, um, uh, do you remember when uh, Jesus was with Pontius Pilate and it was the custom of the Jews to release a prisoner? Do you remember that? And who did they ask for? Barabbas. 
Barabbas, Abba, son of the father, Bar-Jesus. It's the same name, Bar-Jesus, son of the father, uh, God who saves, son of Jesus, son of Joshua. And uh, he was a false prophet, but he was also a Jew. So he's got Jewish heritage. He's rejected the one living God. And he, he has an eclectic understanding of a worldview. So if you remove the sovereign God from your worldview, what do you believe? So you take a little bit here and a little bit there. And I love the coexist one. Isn't that great? The little bumper stickers, those coexist. And I love the cross at the end. That's, that's real sweet. And, and the Muslim half moon and the star, uh, there, that's, there's no coexisting there. And you know why? And this is the trouble with the humanist mindset and the humanist manifesto. The trouble is we believe in absolutes. And we believe that absolutely. And I'm not saying all of Christendom does. But Orthodox Christianity believes the scriptures to be inerrant and absolute. And God holds his word above his name. So based on that, we're, we're intolerant of a lie because we believe there's such a thing as a truth. And the truth can't coexist with a lie. Do you understand that? The church has to come to this comprehension. It, it's not rocket science. There are truths and there are absolute truths and we're bound by those. And our job is to honor them and to stand for them. And, and this guy is driving around with the coexist bumper sticker. And he gets along with everybody. And he's really sweet. Probably drives a Prius. I don't know. I just said that because there was one in the carpool lane that slowed me down. It was upsetting. Uh, where were we? So uh, he's a false prophet. He has a Jewish background. He's got a Jewish name. And he's a sorcerer. And he was with the proconsul. Who's the proconsul? Well, this is the, the Roman appointment to the island. This is the guy who's the, he's, he's the governor. He's the head political leader of the island. And he's with him. So, where do we get our influences from? And if I talk to some of the kids... They would say, well, you know, my parents and, you know, they make me go to this school and I have to read this and, and they, you know, and, and there's some parents are like, you know, I just really feel like my kids should just experience it all. And I just, you know, just let them go. It's great, I guess. I don't know. Scary. You know, you have to have an open mind. Well, okay. An open mind is good with a foundation of truth so that you have a filter. Do you want your kids to have an open mouth and taste everything? open mind like they should experiment with acid? How far do we take that? And where are those foundations that you give to your children? And what is it that they're teaching them? And so this is the guy that is influencing the proconsul. This is the one who's giving him his influence. Can I get a show of hands of how many of you attended last Tuesday's council meeting? I was there, by the way. Could you raise your hand? There was one, yeah, thanks, that hurts. None of you, and guess what? None of you had any influence on the council meeting. Not one stitch, none of you. There were eight women who sat through the entirety of the meeting with their little tiny oak tree, had a huge influence on the council. Nobody from any church came. Who influenced that night? Oh, yeah, but I, I was busy. I, okay, I understand. I, I get it. I didn't want to be there at times. You know, six hours talking about oak trees. But there were issues at hand. Nobody even knew what the issues were. Nobody was prepared to study the issues. I say this because here you have a man who is influenced in a myriad of weird ideas Influencing the governor. Who influences Governor Brown? The Speaker of the Assembly Atkins. She's a lesbian. John Perez was the first homosexual speaker of the assembly. The Senate. Who's influencing them? 
There's, no, there's very few Christians remaining uh, up in the assembly and in the Senate because we don't do that. <clears throat> and so here you have this man influencing the proconsul. His name was Sergius Paulus, an intelligent man. He was smart. He was an intelligent man. And this man called for Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. Now, now you've got a conflict. Barnabas and Saul weren't there, but they heard that they were there, and they'd heard through the channels that they were there, and they knew them to be smart because their reputation preceded them. And this man is an intelligent man, and he's obviously got Bar-Jesus in there feeding him a, a line, and he's trying to process that. He's got a Roman background, and the Romans just assumed all of the Greek gods, and, and they were trying to keep the Roman Empire together, but they were having problems to do that as well. And so he seeks out Barnabas and Saul to hear the word of God. There's got to be something better. You know what? This is a really exciting time to be alive. I stopped at the 76 gas station on Wendy. I walked in and the guy's name was Ben. I go, Ben, what do you think about all this stuff going on in France? He goes, man, it's crazy. And I know, isn't it? I go, what's your background, buddy? He goes, my dad was uh, Air, uh, Air Force and married my mom from Germany, and I was born there, spent some time, and then uh, moved to Oxnard and ended up, I've been all over the place, and I've worked up in Alaska fishing. And I said, are you a churchgoer? He goes, no, nah, not really. I said, what do you believe? Oh, man, I just kind of believe. Well, if you don't believe, if you believe everything, you're going to fall for anything. Do you have any foundations, any spiritual foundations in your life? He's looking at me like, and I go, the only reason I'm asking is, how do we know what happened in Paris is wrong? Who says it? Because the Muslims say it's right. Not all Muslims, but the Muslims who participated did. Who says it's wrong? Where's your foundation? And he's like, whoa, that's kind of heavy. I mean, I wasn't really expecting to have a conversation like that. He goes, what do you do? I go, I'm a pastor. I'm going to church right now. I can't get off, but I'd come there. Ask him. The place is right. People are rudderless and shocked. And how will they know unless someone tells them? And so he seeks them out. But Elimus, Elimus the sorcerer for his name was translated, it's his Greek translation of Bar-Jesus, withstood them. So he goes, uh-uh, I'm not getting any of this, you know, one God, uh, inerrant scripture, the basis of all laws, absolute. You're not coming in here and bringing your, you know, non-tolerant heaviness in here. It ain't going to work. And he withstood them. Does that sound familiar? Anyone? He withstood them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Why? I mean, why should we worry about government? God appoints all positions of authority, Romans 13. Why should we try to influence government? Obviously, the sorcerer, Linus, is interested in it. He's at the council meeting. He's engaged. He's right there. And if Paul and Barnabas stand up to contend, Elimus is going to contend with them. Oh, no, 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 that's out of line. No, 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 no. See, there, that's a... Let's see if, if, if Paul and Barnabas back away. Then Saul, who also is called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit. Okay, so now the Holy Spirit's filled him. Let's see what the Holy Spirit wants to do. The Holy Spirit doesn't want to get involved in politics. I, I certainly wouldn't think that. Looked intently at him. And said, O full of all deceit and all fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease perverting the straight ways of the Lord? And now indeed the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you shall be blind, not seeing the sun for a time. That wouldn't go well in a council meeting. You would be laughed at. And guess what? The people who bring oak trees, people laugh at them too. Those are prophets. He's a false prophet. But prophets are the ones that they're going to get laughed at. They're calling things what they should be that aren't. And declaring those truths. Some of you have that gifting. It needs to be used. Perverting the straight ways of the Lord. What does that mean, straight? It means it's a measure. You think something's straight until you put it up to a, a straight edge and you can see the curves in it. 
And how do we know? What is the foundation? How do we know what straight is? What is 90 degrees? What's 180 degrees? And who's to say that that's straight? And so the bubble's in the middle. I don't think that that's necessary level. What are the absolutes? Who's contending for them? Paul does. And who's he, in, who's he filled with? The Holy Spirit. And immediately a dark mist fell on this man. He went around seeking someone to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had been done, being astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Astonished at the teaching of the Lord. We're too afraid to talk to anybody in power. He's astonished. I have to tell you something. When I stepped into the council, it was almost as though they were waiting for somebody to have a spiritual conversation with every person I've had a a meeting with. It's fascinating. I never even bring it up. It just goes there. It's it's almost like, where where have you been? What would you do in this situation? I quote scriptures, and they're, they're, wow, that's, what is that one? When you look out to the least of these, you've looked, you, you, what you do unto the least of these, you've done unto me. Oh, wow. We go, you know, I, I'm, not, I'm not saying I'm, I'm out there preaching scripture left and right, but I am saying that, you know, I, I met with the superintendent of schools and I talked, I said, when I pray for you, I pray out of the book of James that God will give you wisdom. Thank you for that. I said, you're welcome. I, was, I had a nice spiritual conversation. I even talked to her about purposes and that I believe in absolutes. I said, you're going to really have a struggle because, you know, it's not going to be a religious issue with the transgender bathroom bill. That's the church is not even prepared to do anything. Don't worry about that. I think where you're going to have the major issue is uh, what, what really most citizens in America worship and that's their sports. And I said, and when you got that six foot four uh, biological male that wants to be a female and breaks all the records, it, it, your job is going to get really hard. And she's good. She, she doesn't even like change her poker face. She goes, well, we'll have to process that when we get to it. And, you know, she's, she's in, I mean, her world is filled with landmines. I don't envy her job. Anybody praying for her that we'd live all peaceful and godly lives? Anyone know her name? And Bonabatabas. Anyone know anything about her spiritually? Catholic, single woman, sweet, real nice lady. She really feels God called her here, but didn't really say that because he was concerned. This, this is influence. This is what Paul's doing. And, and you know why I have that ability to, to be in that position? Because of all you. You got me elected. I didn't do it. I, I only voted once. And what's fascinating is this man is trying to lead people into darkness and blind them from the truth. And God blinds him and brings light to the man who seeks him. Do you know how many people out there would love to hear the truth, but nobody's willing to talk to him because we're too afraid? We don't want conflict. Christians are so fearful of conflict. We want to be liked. A missionary goes where he's not loved, but deeply needed. And leaves when he's no longer needed, but deeply loved. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave it here because Paul and his party set sail from Paphos. And they'll come back around and there's a lot to cover in the remaining portions of Acts 13. But I want to I wanna really focus on this, this conflict between Sergius Paulus, Elimus, and Barnabas, and Saul. And I wanted to read this to you and I told you I was going to read, so... This is where you can get comfortable if you're going to fall asleep. And it's only 24 minutes, and I'll get you out early, I promise. But I want you to put on your thinking caps. You've been placed here for such a time as this. I didn't cajole you or force you to come. I've I've always often said, and and Brett tells me not to say this, I I said, look, uh, I I didn't ask you to come, and I'm not asking you to leave. And, And a church is like a set of lungs. It inhales and exhales. And some people leave for the silliest of reasons. Some people leave for good reasons. Some people come for the silliest of reasons. Some people come for the greatest of reasons. But really, when a, when a congregation, a covenant congregation is called together to, to move in a specific direction, it's good to know what we're about. And, and, and this is really, as I'm traveling the country and seeing these things, 
I want you to know him because there will be a testing. The, the comfort that we've enjoyed in Christendom for the majority of our lives is not going to be here in the coming years. This book was written in, in 81. Let me read some of it to you. Something has happened in the last 60 years. The freedom that once was founded on a biblical consensus and a Christian ethos has now become autonomous freedom, cut loose from all constraints. Here we have the world spirit of our age, autonomous man setting himself up as God in defiance of the knowledge and the moral and spiritual truth which God has given. We have a most fascinating government here. We have form, right, and substance. So we have liberty with license, The freedoms we've experienced in America are such because man was governed by an accountability to God. So we had that internal license that we had restraints culturally. Well, when you remove God from the equation and the absolutes of that, and you no longer teach him in the schools, and you no longer speak of his existence, and you exchange the truth for a lie, now what you're going to have is that liberty is now lost in the sense that Everyone has license to do as they please. So now we're shocked at what's taking place. Um, Here's the reason why we have a moral breakdown in every area of life. The titanic freedoms which we once enjoyed have been cut loose from their Christian restraints and are becoming a force of destruction leading to chaos. And when this happens, there really are very few alternatives. All morality becomes relative. Law becomes arbitrary. Does that sound familiar? I mean, we vote to defend traditional marriage and one judge wipes it out. Laws are arbitrary. And what did you base it on? I just felt like it. And I don't want to hear your case. And it's rejected. And society moves towards disintegration. California once had the the best school system in America. Now we're 47th, 48th. Thank God for like Mississippi. It keeps us out of the cellar. We're awful. Our, our, our kids can't read, can't do arithmetic. So this idea of society moving towards disintegration and personal and social life, compassion is swallowed up by self-interest. I can't tell you how many people did just knucklehead moves because they wanted to get home quicker and they put everybody in danger. You've seen it on the roads. You've seen watching the selfishness on airplanes. I watched a woman at the Starbucks. She didn't want to get in the line because, because it was too long. So she made the three cars behind her back out so she could get out. And she's getting out of her big, I won't even say what kind of car, and she's telling everyone to move. And I'm, we, were, we were sitting there, weren't we? We were watching that. And I was like, are you kidding me? I mean, I, I was in the gravitational pull of her universe. <laughs> As I have pointed out in my earlier books, when the memory of the Christian consensus which gave us the freedom within biblical form is increasingly forgotten, which is what's happening, and churches are moving away from the inerrancy of scriptures, and it's all topical, and it's feel-good messages, and it's you know lights and sounds, and nobody has a biblical foundation, nobody studies the scriptures to show themselves approved. We, we have an emotional attachment because we raised our hand to receive Christ, but there's no discipleship, there's no grounding. And so this memory of the Christian consensus which gave us this freedom is increasingly forgotten. A a manipulated authoritarianism will tend to fill the vacuum. Uh, What does he call it? A presidential um, executive order. Forget the Congress. I'm doing an executive order. But you can't do that. Watch me. And Congress won't stand in the way of it. And they'll tend to fill the vacuum. At this point, the words right and left will make little difference. Does that sound familiar? What is right and left? We don't know anymore. I don't even know who a conservative is or what a liberal is. It all seems, and I've, I've, I've been involved with both parties and I've seen it. They are only two roads to the same end. Because when everyone loses their foundation, they ultimately come to the same end. The results are the same. An elite and authoritarianism as such will gradually force form on society so that it will not go into chaos and most people will accept it. And as Benjamin Franklin said, we'll give up our freedom for the sake of security. 
And he says, you deserve neither at that point. We're buying it. And just a few minutes left, let me read this. The battle we are in. As evangelical Bible-believing Christians, we have not done well in understanding this. The world spirit of our age, like Eliamis, right? The world spirit of our age rolls on and on, claiming to be autonomous and crushing all that we cherish in its path. 60 years ago, so this would have been for him the 20s, 60 years ago, we, we have imagined, would we have imagined that unborn children would be killed by the millions here in our own country? For us, it's like, well, yeah, I mean, that's what everyone does. And you, you stand in defense of the unborn? Guess how many pastors wrote me when I got attacked? Not one. The only person was um, um, Mike Dunn, school board. You know, as the only Christian who reached out. 60 years ago, we would have imagined that unborn children would be killed by the millions here in our own country or that we would have no freedom of speech when it comes to speaking of God and biblical truth in our public schools or that every form of sexual perversion would be promoted by the entertainment and media. Not just that anymore. Now it's promoted by the government as legitimate or that marriage, raising children and family life would be objects of attack. Sadly, we must say that very few Christians have understood the battle that we are in. Very few have taken a strong and courageous stand against the world spirit of this age as it destroys our culture and the Christian ethos that once shaped our country. He doesn't go on to purport that America is a Christian nation or ever was, but he goes on to lay out the foundation of law we did receive and how fascinating it is, and we'll cover that on Sunday mornings. But the scriptures make clear that we as Bible-believing Christians are locked in a battle of cosmic proportions. It is a life and death struggle over the minds and souls of men for all eternity. Just like Sergius Paulus. His soul was on the line and there was a battle. And you had Paul and Barnabas and you had Eliamus contending. So he says here, but it is equally a life and death struggle over life on this earth. On one level, this is a spiritual battle which is being fought in the heavenlies. And we know the scripture, Paul's letter to the Ephesians presents the classic expression. Let me read the, the scripture to you. For our struggle, and Paul, Paul wrote this when he was writing to the church in Ephesus, and I imagine he looked at this and he realized that when he walked into Sergius Paulus' proconsul and he saw this spiritual battle, this was inspiring when he wrote to the Ephesians. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Do we really believe, listen, do we really believe we are engaged in this cosmic battle? And honestly, maybe 5% of the time. And the proof of that is how little we pray and value prayer. Do we really believe that there are powers of this dark world which rule our age? Or as the Apostle John says, do we really believe that the whole world is under the control of the evil one? 1 John 5, 19. If we do not believe these things, and we must say that much of the evangelical world acts as if it does not believe these things, we certainly cannot expect to have much success in fighting the battle. We'll never succeed against ISIS. It is, it is an ideological battle that we're unwilling to define. And we are not in a place to say they're wrong because we have no absolutes. You see that? Why has the Christian ethos in our culture been squandered? Why do we have so little impact upon the world today? Is it not because we have failed to take the primary battle seriously? And if we have failed to take this battle seriously, we have certainly failed to use the weapons our Lord has provided, as the Apostle Paul writes. Almost finished. Finally, be strong, Paul writes, in the Lord and in the might of his power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything to stand, stand firm. Then with the belt uh, of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, with your feet fitted, with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all of the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. 
With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. That's Ephesians 6, 10, 11, 13 through 18. He writes, note, there is nothing in this list that the world accepts as a way of working, but there is no other way to fight the spiritual battle in the heavenlies. And if we do not use these weapons, we have no hope of winning. There's, there's nothing our government can do to fix this. The, the battle rests with us. It's in the heavenlies. The primary battle is a spiritual battle in the heavenlies. But this does not mean, therefore, that the battle we are in is otherworldly or outside of human history. What does that mean? Well, here's how we're going to stop it. We're all going to gather in the room and pray 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days. No, no, no. You pray and you work. Here's the picture. It is a real spiritual battle, but it is equally a battle here on earth in our own country, in our own communities, our places of work, in our schools, and even in our own homes. The spiritual battle has its counterpart in the visible world, in the minds of men and women. What was being contended for in Acts chapter 13? The mind of Sergius Paulus. Yes? Hello? It's the same thing with everyone you come into contact with. In every area of human culture, in the realm of space and time, the heavenly battle is fought on the stage of human history with people contending for their minds. But if we are to win the battle on the stage of human history, it will take a prior commitment to fighting the spiritual battle with the only weapons that will be effective. It will take a life committed to Christ, founded on truth, lived in righteousness, and grounded in the gospel. But this is the part, and this is what I'll close with. The Bible is the weapon which enables us to join with our Lord on the offensive in defeating the spiritual hosts of wickedness. But it must be the Bible as the word of God in everything it teaches in matters of salvation, <clears throat> but just as much where it speaks of history and science and more morality. If it is compromised in any of these areas, as is unhappily happening today among many who call themselves evangelicals, we destroy the power of the word and put ourselves in the hands of the enemy. Finally, it will take a life of prayer, praying the spirit on all occasions. The idea, and he goes into it further, and I'll cover it more as I put the messages together in the coming weeks on Sunday mornings. The issue is this. We have pietists that have infiltrated the body of Christ. Pietists separate the holy from the secular. Man, I just do church. I'm not into, I'm not into all that other stuff. I don't, I don't want to go to the schools. I, I don't... I don't want to go, you know, into the government. I don't want to go into the media. I just, I just want to go to church because it makes me feel good. And, and we, we merit our success as pastors. And this is, this is what the world is telling me success is. <clears throat> the, the three Bs, budgets, baptisms, and buildings. The more people we have, the more successful I am. The bigger the buildings, the more successful I am. The bigger the budget, the more successful I am. That's how we measure ourselves with other pastors. Buildings, budgets, and baptisms. That is not success. That has nothing to do with success. Success is the faithful application of God's word in the culture in which he's placed us in every vestige of it. Equipping the saints unto ministry, discipleship. And the pietist movement is, is platonic at best. What I mean is, the pietist movement is, you know, you come out and you love, you love to define how what we don't do, you know, and we have freedom and I'm not into that. You know what it is? <clears throat> it's laziness. It's an, it's an amazing way that a pastor can seem to be bold by talking tough behind a wooden box while doing nothing to engage the culture. It's platonic. It's just words that are empty. And, and he's, he's speaking them to people that are seated in chairs that really see no application in their world and don't do anything. And quite honestly, they're not even challenged to do it. And, and, and we decry the decline of our nation and the things we've enjoyed as Christians. But there's no other way to turn the tide. 
it's going to require a bold application of the scriptures in our community. You don't have to go federal. You don't have to go state. But doggone it, we better be involved in every place and get to every Sergius Paulus in every position of authority in our community and contend for their mind and contend for the minds of the kids. We have two Christians that I know of on that school board. It's a five-seat school board. Why in the world can't we get another one? And why when we speak to Christians, it's as though I'm talking Martian. When our children's lives to contend for their minds are on the line and people look at me like I'm some idiot, right? This is what we're called to. The Sergius Paulus's of the world need the truth of the gospel. And it's true in every area of our community. And you know why Sergius Paulus listened to Paul and Barnabas? Because they were the real deal. They were repentant. Their lives lived accordingly. Their reputation preceded them. And the door opened to them. And they were gutsy and they were bold and they were faithful and they were prayerful. Is this worth fighting for? Then let's do it. And I imagine next Wednesday is going to be even lighter than this one. I'll get you out six minutes early and then you can go have a cup of coffee and just try to process all this. Hey, it's heavy. But you know what? I'm looking at my kids and my grandson. I'm looking at Paris, France. I'm looking at what's happening. I'm hearing the, the, the reports coming through, and these are high-level sources. And I'm not here to scare everybody. God hasn't given us a spirit of fear. I, I'm looking at it saying, okay, is, is my response to this? Ah, Jesus is coming back. We're all going to get raptured. I don't have to do anything then you're not reading your Bible. Because God says to occupy until he comes. He says to push back the gates of hell. He says we're more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. That is platonic. That's pietist. That's worthless. And that's what got us in this mess to begin with. And, And if the Lord tarries, I want you to look at your kids and your grandkids and say, it wasn't worth fighting for. Have a nice life. We can't do that. We can't do that. We've got work to do. You know, and I, I leave you with that thought of Travis. He didn't lose all four limbs to defend land. It was ideals. It's an ideological war. And how can we defend something we don't know? If you're not in a quad, in a discipleship group, get in one. If you have sins that easily beset you, repent of those. If you're not a prayerful person, start to be and come and join us. It's time. It's time. We've got to stop hanging out here, feeding on milk as babes in Christ. It's time to grow up. This country needs us. Amen.